welcome to another cultural briefing with Sparks and Honey. I'll be your host today. My name is Carrera Kernick, and joining me as my co-briefer remotely is Rob Henze. He is our SVP of cultural strategy and our practice lead for our policy and philanthropy, philanthropy practice. So today's, oh, sorry. I'm also joined by Jackie, Ben, Niasia, especially a, a great um, audience of, of Sparks and Honey's Finest as well. Really excited to get into, uh, of course, Anna Lee <laughs> remote as well. Really excited to get into the discussion today. Um, and today we're going to be talking about gender justice, which I'm sure will prove incredibly insightful, especially as we look at a lot of the topics in the news right now being around reproductive health, employment, uh, gender parity, child care gaps. You know, all these things are really under the cultural microscope today. So so it'll be really interesting to get into our question. And our question specifically for this briefing is, how can leading organizations utilize culturally centered tactics to amplify community leaders and marginalized voices at scale in pursuit of gender justice? So with all of our briefings, we always take our question into queue. And we'll type out a, a, a pretty extensive Boolean that features words like gender justice, um, gender employment gaps, birthing people, abortion, Roe v. Wade, and it will spit out thousands and thousands of signals from all around the world. Of course, that's a lot for one person to look at, so we use our Q intelligence system to, a, to attach certain elements of culture to the conversation so we can kind of have a better bird's eye view on how culture is impacting this conversation. So when I look at this, um, this culture map, I see polarization. Of course, this is a topic that is heavily densed in um, in polarization, there's moral imperative. Uh, Rob, I'd love to throw it over to you to, to hear what you think is popping on this um, on this chart. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot going on on this zeitgeist map, right? Looking at the at the top three, for example, right? We have crowd economy, really emblematic of how, with a lot of shaky legal ground happening in America today, you know, either you know, countrywide and statewide, people are coming together to problem solve, whether it's, you know, giving people rides of long distances to get to receive the reproductive health they might need or, or any various ways that communities and crowds are coming together to problem solve. Crayer talked about polarization. I think moral imperative is really reflected by a lot of what we're seeing, for example, from the private sector, right, with in increasing numbers of companies putting lots of skin in the game to support their employees. Um, but even if we look down into these other trends, we see things like income inequality, you know, huge driver in terms of who's being impacted by a variety of issues impacting gender justice today. Um, uh, so uh, all the way to new masculinity, right? I think that's something we'll see pop up today where we're talking about gender justice and, and um, you know, the role that, yes, that women have to play, but also that men need to play in pursuing and achieving the outcomes that we all want with regard to gender justice. Right, so this, this lots map, in here. <laughs> this map really kind of does lay out the roadmap for the discussion that we're going to be hitting on today. Speaking of which, Rob, will you take it away with our first signal? Absolutely. Um, our first signal here comes from the New York Times, um, and uh, it's all about how abortion bans um, are among the states with abortion bans, excuse me, are among the least supportive for mothers and children. Um, society is being confronted, as, as many of us know, with new and much more direct questions about the intersection of gender and policy 
thanks to the Supreme Court's recent decision uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade, uh, uh, nearly 50 years of, of precedent. One major source of tension here is simply, as this New York Times piece uh, points out, that states that have most quickly done away with abortion care, those of trigger laws and you know uh, 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 ballot initiatives waiting to be put in front of the people, um, are also those states that have the lowest levels of financial and policy support uh, for babies and for mothers. Mississippi, for example, uh, the state whose you know itch to limit abortion uh, across in almost all instances, which led to the returning of this landmark landmark law. And in this state, uh, this state ranks second to worst when it comes uh, to how to women being uh, having the proper health insurance that they need. Fifth worst in terms of maternal mortality rates and dead last in terms of infant mortality and child poverty. Uh, in short, it's not a state that's really quite ready for an increase in children. Um, so a question for the panel, um, do we see this tension creating new social imperatives and change? Can we expect more emphasis on caring for children in places like Mississippi, or have we simply, because of this polarization and other factors, divorced actual care outcomes from um, a less sort of layered view of what a policy outcome might look like? Um, uh, I'll open this up to the panel. Um, I'll go first. I think with those states that are doing things where, you know, it's like immediate, you have to, you can't have no abortion and stuff, always find it that it turns into, you know, not separation of church and state type of thing, and it turns into more of religion obligations, whereas because this is America, everyone's not the same religion. So, you know, even though in a lot of religions it's still not considered great, it's also a lot of other religions have things in place where you have to take care of children first, which we don't really see a lot in a lot of different Christianity and Catholicism. So it's like that's a very heavy Christian state versus, like, Pennsylvania, like Philadelphia is a very heavy Muslim state. They have in the religion that you have to take care of. So a lot of times with, like, big brands and companies, they have to go along with the religion of those mothers tend to get maternity care in ways that other mothers don't. And in states like that, because it's, I don't think it's been seen. I don't think the state and policymakers are prepared or even more educated in what that actually looks like. Because there are more house moms and housewives in those states than in the other state, whereas also it's because cost of living is way higher in like New York state than a lot of southern states, so is you have to work no matter what. So it's kind of moving along, I think, not necessarily even backwards, but it's on a streamline of static and stasis where it just won't move because they haven't had the the need to in, like, centuries. Well, I... Uh, so I'll, I'll jump in here and I... Um... You know, I mean, look, I, I think we are moving... We, it looked like we were moving, certainly, to a space where we'd see states, as you were saying, that were, you know, heavily uh, religious in that bent, like toss it, like Mississippi, tossing out uh, abortion care access but not doing the backfill. And then other states, like, say, New York, getting a little bit more progressive in the way that they, um, that they treat uh, uh, reproductive care issues. I mean, this is all happening in the light of what happened yesterday in Kansas, uh, where a major ballot measure was put up. Uh, Kansas is 
is, 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 a, is, a fair, is, a, is a conservative state. Maybe not the absolute most conservative state, but it's very conservative. I read it hasn't sent a Democrat to the Senate since 1932, right? Like, that's how red this state is. Uh, and yet, by nearly a 20% margin, voters there threw out a ballot measure that would have allowed them to remove uh, from the state's constitution the right to an abortion. That is a seismic shift, right? I mean, people were saying it, the outcome might be close, but literally the anti-choice side was clobbered. And so I actually think it's really interesting to see, you know, there's this conventional wisdom, I think, that you were getting at, Niasia, about, you know, religious states are going to do one way, progressive states are going to go another. And what we're actually finding is that in a state like Kansas that is fairly conservative, that has fairly high rates of people who go to church and, and would be the profile that you would expect to be the kind of people who would want to get rid of abortion care and not do much else, we're finding that there is a real groundswell there um, in, in support of reproductive choice. And, and it, part of that is because we just simply don't have the kind of support system that could support all those, you know, all, uh, all those new mothers and those, and those children. So, you know, I think we still don't know where it's going to land, but the past 24 hours has been wild in regards uh, to this conventional wisdom being kind of tossed out the window by the voters in Topeka and Wichita and Mission Hills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's an interesting idea. You know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if it's a trend we see across. You know, when we turn it over to the states, yeah. if the states are kind of having different ideas than we thought um, when it comes to reproductive rights. Um, Rob, do you want to take us through yeah. our, our next signal here? For sure. And just, uh, just one last period at the end of what Ben said, I'd be curious to see in the fall how many people uh, ardently voted against the ballot measure that might still be supporting slates of candidates that support measures to ban, right? So a lot, I think, of people questioning, you know, I don't support them on this issue, but I still support this candidate. Um, so we'll see how the next few months um, unfold. Um, our next signal uh, is uh, digging into the ins and outs of insurance, uh, specifically this piece about the U.S. saying that insurers must still cover birth control uh, despite uh, the Supreme Court's abortion ruling. This obviously on the heels of legal speculators saying that this court decision could have implications down the road for other issues, including birth control uh, and, and contraception at large. Um, so at the same time, just because Roe v. Wade is no more, doesn't mean that the backstops we have created to ensure and gender equity and public policy have not completely disappeared. Um, here, Reuters reports that, quote, the Biden administration recently warned U.S. businesses and health insurance providers that limiting coverage of contraceptives after a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned the constitutional right to abortion would violate federal law, unquote. Most, both, most birth control works by preventing fertilization, but some work by limiting a fertilized egg's ability to implant and develop. And those are the kind of birth controls that could run afoul of new laws that recognize a fertilized egg as having constitutional rights. Um, access to birth control, though, health insurance uh, is a hard-fought, decades-long precedent. It's not a new issue. Um, that could be threatened by a Supreme Court uh, comprised of justices who are attempting to push through highly unpopular changes to reproductive choice policy, um, emblematic uh, by this Kansas vote that Ben just mentioned. So a question for the panel is, you know, what should healthcare providers from doctors to health insurance companies to pharmacies, what should they be doing here? Do they have to, do they now have to develop state-by-state -state regulations 
what's a strategic move that they can make that is in line with federal law um, as much as it is in line of where culture is today? Uh, I'll open this up to the panel. Oh, I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about, <coughs> who, know, who does know enough about health insurance? <laughs> um, but I think that the, the it, this like really highlights that I feel like the disconnect between like policy and culture are like, we are so far beyond those two things being like linked up at all. You know, like, I think that they're very out of sync and um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm also just kind of making this question bigger. <laughs> well, okay, so I'm, as I'm sitting here choking to death, um, it is worth pointing out, I read an article today about, there's a drug called methotrexate that is designed for, <clears throat> for arthritis, um, but it also can be used as an abortifacient, right? It can be in, in large doses, it can you know, terminate a fetus. And there are people who have arthritis who are being denied access to their methotrexate. This is literally a, this is something that is designed very specifically for arthritis, or that's what it's, that's what it's real use is, but it can be misused. And so that is, I mean, that is a wild problem, right, that, that these insurance companies are going to have to deal with, because if there are random pharmacists who decide they're not going to fill your methotrexate because they think it can be used as an, you know, as an abortion pill. That is going to impact the millions and millions of Americans who have arthritis that, are, that is totally outside of this. And that's what's really important about why insurers need to take a, a you know, have a solid policy, a values-driven policy on this, because there is so much chance for basically cultural abuse here. I think that goes back to what we saw in Kansas, that people are not willing. There may be people, look, everyone has their own, uh, their own values when it comes to uh, reproductive choice. You know, to a degree, we have to uh, respect that everybody's entitled to those opinions, right? But if those opinions run afoul of people's access to, to, to reproductive health care or to their ability to, you know, treat their arthritis or whatever, I mean, suddenly we're going to have to, brands are going to have to make really, really strong and solid decisions about this. It is great that the U.S. government says that you have to fill those, uh, you know, those, uh, those birth control uh, prescriptions, but we're going to need support from the Cigna's, from the Aetna's of the world to remind themselves that, you know, like, that care is, is higher than people being icked out by different kind of political, you know, people don't want to get in trouble. No, you are a pharmacist because you are just, like, you take that job to care for people and your politics need to be set aside from that. And, you're, and you know, part of that is also brands saying, well, look, we'll support the pharmacists, we'll support the people who work for us to make sure that they are able to take their oath seriously and not get caught up uh, in, in policy change. It's interesting, too, you know, we're, we're kind of talking about how people in lieu of direct pathways to the care they need are kind of going after maybe... Uh, arthritis medicine. We yeah. saw this huge TikTok trend where people were giving advice on how to do um, an abortion with herbs, like a natural one, and it was ending up, you know, not, not, um, it's not a viable method, but, you know, I got caught up in the wild, the, the whirlwind of, of the algorithm and, and did a lot of damage. And I, uh, my worry is that we're going to see more and more of this kind of happening, these alternative pathways outside of the, um, yeah trusted medical uh, industry. And if we're, just very quickly, if we're acting nuts like that, that if, if we're, excuse me, that's my, my opinion. If we are trying to criminalize anything that could be used to offer, to end, uh, to terminate a fetus, right? That's going to be not just a problem 
for insurance companies, that's gonna be a problem for Home Depot and Lowe's because Tansy and Pennyroyal are different herbs that you can use as abortifacients. And, you know, burpees and whatever seed catalog you want to use probably doesn't, you know, shouldn't have to worry about, you know, being canceled or being raided by the feds because they're selling, you know, herbs that you can grow in your, in your backyard and, you know, smell great or whatever. Right. It is interesting to see where this issue will kind of pop up in, in industries we didn't really even think. Um, I want to move on to our next signal here. Oh, Annalie, were you going to say something? Thing? Yeah, I wanted to say um, that that doctor who gave the ten-year-old the abortion uh, finally sort of had the courage to speak out and say that you know unless the profession speaks out by saying silent, people think they're doing the wrong thing, and it is really important, I believe, for brands, pharmaceutical companies, and insurers to now find their voice and bring sanity, clarity, and science to this conversation. I think that is like the battle cry of, of today's discussion. I love that, Annalie. So in South Carolina, legislators have proposed a bill that would restrict phone calls, emails, text messages, and websites that share information on how to get abortions. So if this bill were to become law, providing information that could help women get an abortion by, quote, telephone, internet, or any mode of communication, or hosting or maintaining websites that could help women access abortions would be a felony punishable by two to five years in prison and fines up to $5,000. I think also in this vein of, of uh, personal data privacy, we've also seen women kind of telling each other to delete their menstrual cycle apps, worried that that data might get tracked, and then also you know, some people on, online who are giving um, advice about abortion are kind of using coded language because there's this fear that it will be traced back to them. So my question for the panel around you know, these privacy concerns in the post-Roe era is, um, you know, it's becoming increasingly clear that the end of row will look vastly different than pre-row, especially because we have all this technology. It's one of the uh, defining factors that's making this moment different. Um, but how do you think this will impact the lives of women and, and birthing people in general? Um, I think like with anything that deals with the internet, because it never really goes away, like even though we always hear that, and I think sometimes you don't think about it until it hits you and you're like, oh, I probably didn't delete it, but we know people can go in, they can find all these things. Using, uh, like, your fear, because I think there's still a general fear of the internet. No matter how much we still use it, no matter how much we post on it, it's still the general fear of, oops, the wrong person. But now the wrong person is the government. So it turns into, I think if you instill the fear that you're going to get in trouble and you're going to go to prison and you're going to have these charges, because as we all know, once you become a felon, you can't vote anymore. That's immediately taken away your voting rights, which is what scares, I think, people the most, is if I can't vote to make change, I'm stuck with the decision of the change makers. So it turns into, I've been seeing like all over TikTok and all over like my Instagram of a bunch of activists like really worrying and really having this thought process of should we just go rogue? Like we don't know what to do. It's like, you know, the polarization of, okay, just do it anyways. It's going to be okay. And then you have a lot of people who are like, we have kids already. We might want kids, so we don't want like the surgeries to get rid of that. We don't want like vasectomies right now. But if I got pregnant today in this economy, in this climate, I can't, I can't provide for my children, new children, myself, 
and then it turns into a fear of like condom buying has like skyrocketed. Now they're running out of condoms everywhere, but we also saw what a few weeks ago someone got denied buying condoms. Mm -hmm. So then it turns into I can't even say that on the internet. I can't even like say my rooftop health or we were using condoms for whatever reason. It is scaring people to the point where everyone's also they're just quiet now. Like you first was like up for it and now when they said, oh, you can go to jail for saying it, everyone stopped. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of nerve-wracking to see because it's like, we're struggling for help. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, look, I'm, I'm glad you brought up social media because I do think that this is something for social media companies to pay a lot of attention to. I mean, I tend to think this is unenforceable, uh, even with a really conservative Supreme Court. I mean, this stuff is unenforceable in part because it has to be prosecuted at the state level, and a lot of states are not going to do anything about this. Uh, and so I can post in New York, and someone can read it in South Carolina, and no one's going to run afoul of that law. And the other issue is, like, look, you know... Um, Social media companies have made great strides to try to um, to try to moderate extremist content on their platforms, right? And that's still not perfect. And this is something they want to do, right? So imagine them. Imagine the state of South Carolina trying to get the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Discords of the world to actively police this stuff. It's really hard to do technically, and it requires a lot of of, of state and it requires a lot of institutional buy-in. And I just don't see the tech companies unless they are absolutely forced in some like bizarre jackbooted way to want to engage in this. This is a this is a bill this is a billions of dollar investment problem if you wanted to try to police it and there is no appetite for anybody whether it's in the public sector beyond these guys uh, or in the private sector to like police this the way you'd have to uh, the way that this ridiculous law is written. Right, right. Yeah. It is curious that they would propose something like this. It almost kind of cuts back to the even if they can't enforce it they can create a cultural fear and and yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that um, one of the things that is actually a fundamental issue here is that for the longest time, health and privacy were, they've gone hand in hand. So you could always know uh, and sort of trust that your medical doctor will not divulge your medical information. Now, suddenly your um online activity becomes part of your medical profile. I know that Google has declared that they will basically wipe all the data that they automatically collect of people that are going to search for uh, abortion clinics, alternative options, etc. Now, Google made a decision that they will suppress this data. What if Google was um, of a different mind? What if there was a different kind of ideology running Google and then that data becomes weaponized? Certainly, I think that America has a lot of uh, challenges to look at medical data and privacy in terms of future tech policy and regulation. That's a good point. Emily. I think it all really comes down to like what Annalise said, I think it comes down to the relationship between the government and the private sector and yeah. technology and, um, you know, to make a generalization, like, it's, they're not really going to enforce it because the government tends to be a lot worse at technology than the private sector. Um, but then it really, like, makes this question, like, what does it mean when we rely on a company like Google or Apple to protect our safety and um, our privacy and, you know, I think that's a big, like, Web3 question. Yeah. 
that we'll have to answer. Yeah, and I think the, uh, I'll add one quick thing. I mean, <laughs> going back to the results in Kansas last night, I mean, if companies are worried that this is a 50-50 issue, uh, this is, should be clear. What happened in Kansas should be clear that it's not a 50-50 issue. The vast majority of people want this stuff protected. It's something I read 10% of millennials who were... Um, polled want the sort of restri- they want the sort of an- anti-choice restrictions that they're that they're talking about here 10 percent of of people that is that's that's why this is in part it's both legally unenforceable technologically probably unenforceable and it seems increasingly culturally unenforceable as well interesting i want to shift gears for our next signal and kind of talk about the implications on cis male partners this article from npr says that research on the impact of abortions on male partners has been limited but that doesn't mean the issue isn't relevant to men. One in five men have been involved in abortion. One study finds, of course, this might be underestimated because there are probably cases where you don't know that you've been involved in an abortion. Um, And the study also found that young men who were involved with a pregnancy that was terminated have four times more likely chance to go to college and finish that degree. So Dr. Andrea Becker, who conducts research on the gendered stigma around abortion, says abortion doesn't just benefit the person having the abortion, but their partners, their existing children, and and their future families. There's another quote from here I wanted to read as well. It says, parents should think hard about not just what the repeal of Roe is going to mean for their daughters, but also for their sons and how they might have sons that are parents and and becoming fathers much earlier than they thought. So I guess the question here for me is, do you think there needs to be a shift in how we frame abortion as it being kind of like a one-sided gender issue for women? Or should we make space to think about the implications on men and cis men for for this group? Or does that kind of dilute the focus that it should have on women and and birthing people in general? What do you guys think? I think that everyone should be included because it is kind of a everyone deal. Um, And even like I assume that it's also under, you know, reported because sometimes people don't know until after, so you can't really show up like with the intent. But I think excluding like cis men from conversations like this also begs into the social like I guess I don't want to say social norm because I think it has shifted a whole lot um, over the past few decades. But that men aren't fathers. They're, you know, like men just go to work and then they come home and then it's like, oh, they're babysitting kids instead of parenting children like, you know, the women are. And we've seen like culturally that shift has changed. We can see it all over social media. We see, you know, like my, I have really young siblings. So, you know, I'm in my 30s. I have siblings who are under 10. And my father has my little brother a whole lot. And so on the other day was like, oh, well, like they thought his mom died. And he was just like, no, I just have more free time. I'll work from home. You know, so that turned into this whole, well, when this conversation came up, he had a lot of, he worked with young men. So he was like, he had a lot of young men who were so worried because he was like, they can't afford this. Or even if they couldn't afford it, it was allowed them to work for these really huge companies, like these Fortune 500 companies that don't have uh, parental leave for men. So they were worried about, well, what happens when my wife has the baby? I can't just leave now. She's just going to have to sit at home all day by herself. Yeah. And so it's like, I think to include everyone is beneficial for everyone, just on the simple fact that men are parents too. They're not just there just to be there. They're not just babysitting their own children. 
their parents too. They want to take care of the kids. They want to be there with the kids. They want to love the kids. They want to have family vacations. And a lot of times they're just sending people by themselves or with the mother. And I don't think it dilutes it in any way. Even for like brands, like I think Walgreens does like a really great job mm -hmm. always showing fathers in their commercials. Target has always showed fathers in their commercials. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of these bigger brands now making that shift to mm -hmm. do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Target has the changing tables in male bathrooms now. So right. it's, it turns into we are people, we are being seen, but this conversation hasn't seen them at all. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think with this one, it, you could be tempted to think like, oh, for the, with it being a, a women's or a birthing person's issue, are we diluting it by focusing on men's stories? But I think when you're building a moment, you need as many people in on that momentum as possible. So to ha kind of extend that that empathy towards to cis male partners kind of makes sense to me here. Um, I want to keep moving. We've got a lot of signals still left to do, but and, and I'd love uh, for Rob to tell us about job lock in this next signal. Yeah, so we're going to be shifting our attention over the next couple signals to focusing on on childcare, um, uh, uh, and and this first signal um, speaks about as Carrera mentioned job lock, um, where you know childcare is a problem for employers too. This piece says, and now more of them want solutions. So as we move into childcare, it, you know it's important to note that a, a human need that is older than civilization itself. Uh, but one where solutions are very complex and, and costly, right? We still haven't cracked childcare. Um, an emerging trend within the childcare space is what experts call job lock. J.C. Burton, a childcare provider in Massachusetts, um, interviewed uh, for the piece cited here, uh, describes job lock as the reality of having to secure childcare in order to work and thus often feeling trapped or limited in one's professional options because of the need to maintain uh, that accessible childcare. It's another form of a phenomenon we see in healthcare, where people continue to work in positions they want to leave for, for fear of losing healthcare access um, in the form of insurance, of course. Some people are working on mitigating the negative effects of job lock. Um, Winnie is a child care startup uh, described more deeply in this signal that works on both sides of these concerns helping parents find affordable, trustworthy childcare, while also helping childcare workers find better working conditions through the platform that they are creating uh, and building. So a question for the panel, subsidies to make, to make healthcare cheaper and ending this job lock uh, were discussed as a part of the Build Back Better deal last year, but that support also died with the rest of the bill as it was deemed too expensive. How might we re reframe ending job lock and lowering childcare costs as an investment and not framing it as a money pit? Can we ever make America look more like places like Europe, for example, uh, in this particular way? Um, so I'll open it up to the panel as we think about sort of the, you know, uh, threaded issues of work and, and, and career and the financial security that comes with advancing one's career with the need to stay tethered to reliable, accessible, and affordable health care, uh, and in this case, child care. Um, I'll open this up to the panel for discussion. Yeah, make America Europe again. <laughs> Look, I, I think that uh, the, the French have a very, very good range of options. Uh, the, the official um, uh, children go to school. Government school kicks in from the age of three. So there is no question about affordability. 
public school is available from the age of three. So if your child is three years old, you put them in school, you can go and work. Earlier than that, there are public um, fresh facilities or there is tax subsidy to hire a range of different options. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, um, I know that America's got a lot of problems with its education system, but basically having the school year start earlier will certainly take this burden away from corporations in terms of having to provide the childcare solution because it's an equalizer and then it's kind of a government um, obligation to provide education for all from a very young age. Yeah, I mean, I prefer the public system because I think it, uh, or public solution, because I think it's a more efficient way to move dollars around. But I'm also, I mean, we're sitting in midtown Manhattan where there's like 50% occupancy for some of these buildings that are surrounding us. Even in cities like in, in Texas where there's much higher return rates, they're still not at 100%. And I'm wondering if there aren't opportunities for major corporations, at least in some of their headquarters, to take some of this new space and move this away from job lock to instead offer more child care in some of these spaces would be a great way to bring people who are hesitant to come back into the office into the office. You have the space for it and, and turn this from job lock like I don't want to leave this company because I will lose you know the decent child care I have to something where it's like I want to stay at this company because there's good child care. That's a very different decision making process and there's plenty of opportunity right now to make that happen for especially like new millennial parents who might be open to something like that. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said, Ben. And one of the interesting things in this story, particularly, was one of the companies they profiled talked about, um, I think it was a construction company, that when they brought in, when they started a new job, one of the things that they talked about and within built into the brief and like starting it was, you know, who's on this project? What does, what kind of childcare needs? Like, what does their day look like? And building, you know, what people might, when people might have to travel or be somewhere or what hours they might have to be online. Um, around their childcare needs and like thinking about that in this sort of like building that in in like a fundamental way rather than forcing your employees to like build their lives around their work I think is a potential shift we might see. And I love that because it reframes productivity not as the productivity you miss by caring but the productivity you can add back into the project by thinking about that. Yeah. That's a great point. Our next thing, kind of we also need to think about sort of certain uh, essential services, people who do night shift work. There is absolutely no facility catering for, for those kinds of uh, professions. And um, it's, uh, it's also that double pay gap situation where sometimes lower paid people are working night shift and haven't got access to childcare. Yeah, our next signal talks about the child tax credit and, and bringing it back. And I think I'd, I'll just want to take it to this conversation in general um, as, as a follow-up that, you know, it's really helping lower-income uh, people, especially those in the Black and Latino community. And so there's a lot of people pushing for the, the child tax credit to come back, uh, particularly as a part of racial justice um, policy. Um, but I'll throw it over to, to Rob for our next signal on addressing the double pay gap as Annalie kind of led us into this conversation. Thanks, Carrera. So um, in, this, in the last section, we heard about job lock. And as we move into our final section, more focused on economy and work, again, building on that prior signal, let's talk about another vital term we all need to relearn, uh, the double gap. Uh, double gap refers to the two income gaps that black women must face as both women 
and as people of color. With the exception of indigenous women, no one racial minority group faces such systemic inequality when it comes to income. So how do we address this issue that frankly has persisted for decades, if not uh, longer than that? Um, the author of this particular piece, Michelle Holder, lays out a five-point plan, which she also shared earlier this year directly with Congress. Um, those five points are pass state or federal laws that prohibit employers from requesting previous salary histories from job applicants. We've seen a lot of activity at the state level and at the company level, uh, particularly over the last several months in the last year or two. Pass state or and or federal laws requiring pay transparency in the private non uh, the private for profit sector. Excuse me. Three, force companies to report more income data to the EEOC. Four, lower the cost of college and secondary education. And five, raising the federal minimum wage. So question for the panel, these changes all make a lot of sense. Some of them are very specific and some of them are very systemic, um, but they are fundamentally governmental and policy driven in nature. In that sense, what could say private organizations, institutions, or even individual actors and influencers do to help address and shrink and hopefully in the end, end this double gap? Um, so we'd love to open it up for that for discussion um, around what these possibilities might look like. Um, I'll go first. Well, being a black woman, <laughs> I think that I like the five-point plan. I remember when it was uh, introduced, and I think that although we look at big brands, I don't want to say big brands are necessarily government, but I think that we, like for myself, I'm a big consumer, and I feel like for people who are really big consumers, like most black people are, we rely on brands to kind of push forward the narrative of not necessarily who we are to the public, but the public is watching on TV. Like on my way in, I live in Jersey, I see so many billboards coming all the way down. And where I live in Jersey, I can see straight across into Times Square. I can actually see Times Square billboards from where I live in Jersey. So then I come into Times Square where I'm still seeing those same exact billboards. And to the amount of media we consume, brands are now pushing like smaller ads on like TikTok, smaller ads on Instagram. And to put it out there in those ways, you just see consumers who are buying. But when they go to say, oh, this is the CEO or this is the CFO, you don't there's no one there. So there's always this weird thing of we are for black women getting this and yes, going to get an education, but black women are the most educated people in America. And that's an actual statistic fact. I have three degrees. Every single black woman friend I have has, I'm, I'm like kind of behind. They're like, oh, you just have degrees. You don't have certificates in this. And it's like, you know, and like a lot of my friends have this. A lot of my friends are still kind of poor. And it's like really weird to see because I was the business owner. I was making eight, $80,000, $90,000 a year. My best friend had the same exact job I had, did the same exact business I had. She was making $150,000 out the gate with the same companies I had worked with five years prior. So it's also it's political because everything that deals with black women is political. Like earlier, it, Rob said, like, women and people of color, but I'm a black woman, not a woman black, so we can't say women first because nine times out of 10, the pay I got immediately was off of skin. It wasn't off of gender. So the double gap is what people think of me racially and then what people think of me as a woman and the women issues are not my black issues. So when you're getting paid and you're doing all these things is 
negotiating to the point where it's like, I know I've reached my cap, actually. Even though you probably have $70,000 more to give, I know there's a cap somewhere, and the cap is based solely on are you marketable for that company sometimes. And if they can't kind of put you in a commercial and on a poster and on their little college flyer where you're walking down campus and they're like, can you be in this flyer? And if you say no, you look and see they're just going to go get another person of color. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what it is, is. I think the double gap is based solely on whether or not you can be marketable. Can they put you in a conference room with a group of people and you can market and be believed? Yeah. So I don't think the double gap can end unless you are actively ending racism, which I don't think will happen anytime soon. So for brands to kind of come in, and I, I keep going back to Target because Target is like one of those brands that have so many black-owned products yeah. in Target, and they've always done that. I could always go to Target my whole life and get hair care products, skincare products, anything. It's never been an issue. And I think having brands actually be active and putting people on their boards is what drives it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 loved, I loved everything you said there. I mean, the only thing I'd add to that is I, I would tag it back to what um, Annalise said earlier about that abortion doctor in, uh, in Indiana, the idea that um, when we are silent about these kind of issues, we often reinforce them. And I think it's really vital to to hear from, uh, you know, from you and to have these conversations and to be radically transparent about what people make because we can't solve issues like the double gap if we don't know what people, what the money, that people can't ask for more money if they don't know the money they're not making, right? And so being, so a big part of this, and, and maybe this goes to Rob's question, is just like trying to foster a culture where people will call out problems, you know? The government can raise, uh, you know, can do all that great stuff that's really, really important, but, you know, you want to be in a, in, a, in a company where the culture is open enough that people can say, like, I think I'm being underpaid here, you know? Um, and I think it starts with people talking about these issues very frankly, like you just did. Yeah, absolutely. I want to throw it back over to Rob for our next signal, which is about taxing the patriarchy. Will you tell us about this? Yeah, thank you, Carrera. Uh, our next signal uh, builds on this idea of, of shrinking income gap. Um, and this piece here uh, details how the National William, Women's Law Center is launching uh, what they call their Tax the Patriarchy campaign to make the tax code work better for women. Um, you know, a part of the National Women's Law Center broader view of the interconnected issues impacting gender justice today and gender equity. Um, So, again, as I said, one group working to shrink the income gap and bring about better gender equity are our friends at the National Women's Law Center. In a press release this past April, uh, the National Women's Law Center, quote, announced a new campaign to tax uh, to tax the patriarchy with the release of a new report advancing gender and racial equity by taxing wealth and a tax calculator tool which provides examples of how much revenue could be raised by changing tax policies and how that money could be better invested in women and families. This announcement, time to coincide with tax day, um, the campaign reminds us that, quote, now more than ever, it's clear that loopholes and unfair tax cuts allow the rich to get richer, while any everyone else, especially women and people of color, get left behind, unquote. 
tax policy, as dry as it might seem, is a space for gender, a space for equity, according to the National Women's Law Center. Um, so a question for the panel uh, for us to discuss together is how can good actors like the National Women's Law Center help connect financial fairness to social fairness, right? Again, tax code is super wonky, uh, uh, occasionally dry stuff. You know, what trends might help catalyze this kind of change in culture? I'll jump in. Radical transparency. We literally just talked about that. That's one of our elements of culture. I think it's a really foundational one. And I, you know, I mean, I, I God, I was listening to the, the, I was listening to a piece talking about the Mansion Schumer bill that just came out. It was talking about how like there's 150 million dollars billion dollars in tax revenue we lose because it just goes to people who are the top 0.001% earning income off their investments and acting like it's not income, right? Being open about that and recognizing how much money we lose, how much health care, how much child care we have to go without that uh, is, is really messed up. And that's why that, there's that value uh, to being radically transparent about this stuff. Yeah. And things like this do the really important work of consumer education because, you know, the tax system, like health insurance, is designed not only to benefit people at the top, but it's also designed to make it's it's meant to be opaque. It's meant to be hard to understand and to, to question and to challenge. Um, so the more that people understand about it, the, you know, the everyday person who's filing their own taxes understands, the, the more that they can sort of be transparent and, and say, speak up. Yeah. It's this knowledge is power conversation where if you educate people around legal frameworks or tax policy or um, insurance uh, policies as well, you can kind of create more equity just through the education of um, on these topics. Um, I think that's a great point. So, <laughs> not my point, everyone's point. I wasn't patting myself on the back, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Okay, our final um, signal of the day is looking at how having clear policies on issues that affect family life is increasingly not just important, but crucial to attracting good talent. So this uh, article specifically is talking about some agencies that have announced new measures, including paid time off for adoption, surrogacy, for, uh, you know, supporting people with fertility issues, pregnancy loss, and more, as well as enhanced pa uh, packages around maternity and paternal leave. Uh, they've also introduced some menopause uh, benefits as well. Um, and what were once seen as these kind of progressive perps can now give agencies a competitive advantage when it comes to hiring the best talent. Um, we've also seen, and kind of Nyasha to what you were talking about before, it's like this transparency uh, conversation around if we make salaries transparent, we can kind of uh, produce gender equity uh, from the ground up, even on when we post to job sites in general, to, to show um, the, 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 the range of the salary on sites like Indeed or LinkedIn and et cetera. So my question for everyone is, do you think these programs, you know, kind of what we just discussed, do you think they're revolutionary or do you think they fall short? What, what would actually create equity for all women in this uh, conversation? Annalie, do you have anything? I mean, I think it's, it's practice. I think it's not just the things that are bullet points on a job listing or a press release. It's what does this look like if you, you know, you lose a pregnancy and you have to take time off? Like how many people, what, what sort of sensitive health information do you have to share with your employer? Um, how much detail do you have to give them before they 
treated as legitimate? What happens when you like, does your line manager respect your time off or do you get a hard time? Like if you take extended leave, um, like parental leave, do you, what happens to your job when you come back? Is it the same? Are you supported the same way? And also with salary, you know, how often are you going to get a raise? Like what kind of sort of, what, what's after that? And I think there are multiple things that need to, I, I, look, I think these benefits are interesting. I, I'm a little hesitant to think like who's going to go to their manager and be like, I need menopause benefits or I'm taking time off because I'm having hot flashes. Like, I, good luck. I, I wish you well if you have that relationship with your manager. Um, but I do think, you're, you know, there are, um, it, it's great to see this. We're going to need some other changes in Europe. I know some people who used to do this in the UK. There is like a whole professional class of people who will take jobs for a year when someone's out on maternity leave, right? Mm -hmm. You do that contract. You, you're slotted in there, and, and, and companies adjust to that. And I think that's really great, but it's a lot rarer here in the U.S. And so it's not necessarily just about offering those benefits. I think sometimes companies have to ask themselves these questions where it's like, well, would we be set up for someone like this? Could we have someone come into this role for nine months, kick butt, leave, and have that person come back in and, you know, pick things up where they, where they left off? And I don't think these are really massively difficult changes. Yeah. I just don't think they're questions that people ask themselves. And... Maybe that's that value of that radical transparency. Right. And I think what I was thinking when I was reading this, too, is, is it's very white-collar. Like, to yes. be in a situation where you're getting fertility benefits, like, the majority of women don't have access to that. It's not really helping the equity of, of blue-collar women. And even when it comes to salary transparency, I mean, it's, you, you need to disclose that in New York now by law, but there's ways around it, which, yeah. which are, is unfortunate to see. So they'll disclose the salary, but you don't know if uh, the male candidate is getting a signing bonus that they don't have to disclose, or stock options. And so it's unfortunate that sometimes we see these, this, this progress, but then there's like these workarounds that, um, that, that lead to greater inequity. I was going to say, I think I, I really like this signal and I like the article that came with it because it also shows that even though the companies that are probably doing this, you know, like you said, white collar, it's also they're listening. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the change. Like, at, not at least you're listening, but not only did you listen, you put it into action. Because mm -hmm. sometimes people can talk, you know, to their blue in the face and nothing ever changes. But there was there's an active switch and change that we're seeing culturally and across, you know, all these different huge companies where I think, you know, all the people quitting <laughs> over these two years is what actually brought the change because you have no choice but to listen when millions of people are like, I would rather stay home and literally be poor yeah. than <laughs> come into work. So if someone's telling you they would just rather lay in bed instead of come to you, it's not as progressive because you're actually just doing it to say, hey, please, please choose me. But it also, it listens because it's across, I think it's across age. Yeah. You know, like you get menopause normally when you're older or if you're disabled, menopause will kick in a lot sooner if you have a physical disability. Well, now people with that physical disability don't have to worry. As, as much as they did, maybe they can still apply. Maybe, you know, like maybe that wouldn't be the big issue there. And it's across age to the point where it kind of unifies the social construct of the company itself instead of the outside society. Like, you can be more comfortable talking to a coworker, And even if you probably can't go to a manager, is not to yourself, but to the people around you who can probably advocate for you. Yeah.
Yeah, I love your intersectional lens here. We've talked so much about um, race and gender, but you've brought in ability, you've brought in age uh, to like put those filters on it is always uh, crucial. Thanks as always. I want to uh, add a point here, if I may. Um, I think that a lot of work practices still come, they're still driven from a mindset of um, the employer holds all the power and wants to give as little as possible to the employee and exploit the employee as far as possible and will do the minimum to get by. That is such an old-fashioned and an outdated uh, way of operating. And it's those kind of companies that um, stand to lose the greatest uh, relationship with um, uh, the modern workforce. So I saw a really interesting comment by Dominic Price, who um, leads uh, workforce um, policy at Atlassian. And he said, you know, we, we sort of have to stop talking about the future of work. It's really what does modern work look like as opposed to old fashioned work. And the, it's not somewhere in the future, it's right here with us right now. And so what, what I think corporations are challenged with is to design the modern work organization right now, not tweak and put a, put a few band-aids on, but really fundamentally relook at the relationship between employees as stakeholders in the success of the company, uh, alongside shareholders, alongside customers. That's some of the fundamental messages that are coming through from this whole great reset. It's a great point. It sounds like we need to do a briefing just on that. And Annalie will ask you back to talk about not the future of work, but the, the current status of work. Um, so with that, I want to uh, move into some wrap-ups. Um, so I'd love for each of you to just kind of riff uh, in uh, almost like a tweet length quip on the following question. So given today's discussion, uh, what's one key takeaway from today's discussion that you feel like will be an important driver of culture in the next six months to a year time frame? And uh, Ben, I'll start with you. Um, I'll go back to, well, I, I already cited this, but I'll, I'll go back to it. The idea that if you're silent about something, people assume you're doing it wrong. And uh, I just don't think People, I just don't think Gen Zers and Millennials, and thankfully an increasing number of Gen Xers and Boomers themselves are willing to be silent uh, in the way that they may have been before, and in part because we have platforms that let us really express ourselves. Um, my key takeaway was that everything's moving forward, socially at least, or societal-wise, that no one's sitting still waiting to be told what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Everyone's actively working to make the change happen for them in the moment. Jackie? Um, I think going off of that, I mean, I, there's like a real fundamental lack of like thinking, like long-term thinking, I think that we're missing. And we need to get back to like centering human beings and community in the community and like taking care of people. And what does that look like? Even if you want to believe, if you want to be anti-abortion, you know, what does that mean for that child, then that family? You know, I think that we have to thread that needle and, and figure out what that really looks like, where it's going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Annalie, and then Rob, I'll ask you after if you have any defining uh, thoughts. Uh, I'm really in favor of not polarizing parenting and turning it uh, or reinforcing it as a, as a women's issue. I very much think that the uh, impact on men and 
fathers as part of the abortion conversation is going to be really, really important so that we take things back to parenting and, and, and the, the whole notion of it takes two to make a baby. And uh, we can't just talk about the one person's uh, rights and responsibilities without bringing in the responsibilities of the other party as well. And Rob? Yeah, Annalie kind of uh, started to tee up what I'm going to say, but I want to reflect back on, you know, our EOC new masculinity, which appeared in the zeitgeist map that we kicked off today's conversation with, you know, men um, have a role to play in this, although, um, you know, uh, reproductive rights, for example, is something that women are impacted more uh, more physically and emotionally that men have a role to play in all of this, right? We need to come together, right? It's not a time for men to be silent, to borrow a bit from what Ben said. And then I just think secondarily, and I think that this briefing provided a snapshot of it is, you know, all of these issues connect together. You know, you can't talk about childcare in isolation or reproductive rights in isolation, understanding the interconnectivity of these issues and how they ladder up to bigger, uh, bigger goals and outcomes connected to equality and equity is incredibly important. Um, so while there's a lot of sort of hot spots that are issue specific that we need to stay really focused on, understanding how they all connect together um, and what those bigger outcomes are uh, is also important to keep our eyes on at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interconnected and it's intersectional. I love all these wrap ups. I love the discussion today. Thank you all for joining us to our panel and even those watching at home. We're so glad you tuned in. Just a reminder, we do this every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at 12 EST. If you're interested in knowing more about Q, the, the, the technology behind how we structure these briefings, please reach out for a demo. But until next time, you can consider yourselves briefed.